The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weary or weak. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even the youths will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. These child dedications, as I'm sitting here celebrating with you families, one of the most important decisions that you'll ever make on behalf of your family in leading your children, raising them by the Lord, declaring that it's for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm sitting next to my 14-year-old son and talking to him about the time that we had him dedicated and, and celebrating how significant that was in our lives. And as I'm looking at the amazing, beautiful kids, I'm reminded of games that we used to play with our kids. Not the least of which was covering your eyes right in front of them and or covering their eyes right in front of them and asking the question, where's daddy? Where's daddy? That sounded really creepy. I didn't mean for it too. But to ask the question, where's daddy? <laughs> and then you pull, pull, unveil the eyes and it's peekaboo and they laugh hysterically and they're so excited to see you that you're revealed and it never gets old. They, they, they can laugh for hours on end at that game of peekaboo and it, and it just progresses as they age. We're at a, at a place in life where we're pretty, uh, you know, we're pretty unique in that we have kids age 22 all the way down to age two. So we kind of run the gamut, if you will. And we have had the privilege of being in very different life cycles throughout the course of our lives as a family. But peekaboo just takes on different forms as they get older. Every day, there's a running game of hide-and-go-seek in our house, or sardines, where kids will run and hide, and they'll begin to look for each other. And I, I, I love playing with our kids. The other day, I was playing hide-and-go-seek, and then now we've added to our, our repertoire Marco Polo in the middle of the living room, where you have to leap over furniture and try to avoid our 105-pound, one-year-old giant lab who's as tall as a Great Dane, and he runs. I mean, it's just our house is chaos and, and clutter and fun and, 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 and frantic. It's, it's, it's everything that you would expect with a house of six kids and two adults and a big dog like that. But they love playing hide and go seek. And it never gets old that when they go to, to find them, they'll look at mom or me and they'll say, hey, do you know where Caden is? Hey, dad, where's Taylor? We can't find her. And I'm just using this as a, as a, as a really, I'll call it what it is, Simple and quasi-cheesy segue into the question today, which is, what if, what if that question, hey, where is Caden or where's Talon? What if that became the norm? What if that became the standard? When people went to look for you, they knew that you were alone with the Lord. They knew that you were, were practicing solitude. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Is we're going to talk about the spiritual discipline of solitude, of getting away to encounter the Lord. We started this series stronger four weeks ago. And it's in response to the Spirit leading us as a church with a, a theme that we picked for 2018, which is to grow. We want to grow as a church. We want to grow stronger in our relationships. We want to grow stronger in our faith. We want to grow stronger in our knowledge and our understanding. But in order for us to grow stronger in our application of the Word of God and the things of God, we've got to implement some spiritual disciplines in our lives that make it pragmatic and functional for us to implement these things so that we can grow stronger. We started four weeks ago, week one, with the spiritual discipline of study. And I talked about how everything that we're going to learn through the course of this series is predicated on the study of the Word of God. After week one, looking at study, we looked at the second week, and that was prayer, the spiritual discipline of prayer. Not that it's a recipe or that it's a bunch of rules and regulations, but it's about a relationship. And so we focused on prayer being a spiritual discipline that we wanted to implement in our lives. Last week, we talked about the spiritual discipline of meditation, how we are called to meditate on the Word of God, that it's not about emptying your mind as Eastern religious and mysticism would have you believe, but it's about filling your mind with the things of God, the Word of God, the Spirit of God. And today, we're going to talk about the spiritual discipline of solitude. Let me invite you to grab your Bible right now and to turn to the book of Psalm chapter 46. And if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you a Bible. These Bibles are yours to have and to keep. We encourage you to bring them each and every week as we study together the Word of God. It's a great way for you to, to track with us, to write, 
down your insights and to circle what you're seeing and to write down some questions and to take it with you so you can study throughout the week as well. So just simply raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you a Bible. And again, that's yours to have. As we get ready to jump into Psalm 46, if you're wondering where Psalm is or the book of Psalms, you can turn just about midway to your Bible, hang a left just a few chapters or a few books over and you'll run right into Psalms. As we get there, Psalm 46, we're going to start with a parallel passage of scripture in Mark chapter 1. Now, you, you can turn there if you'd like, but I'm just going to spend a few minutes on Mark chapter 1 that's going to that's help set up the understanding of solitude. And I can't think of a better way to set up the standard for solitude than Jesus Christ, than the model that he set for us, the example that he put in place for us, and the importance of solitude in his life, solitude being getting alone with God. In Mark's gospel, it's Mark's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Mark starts by talking about the ministry of Jesus. Not so much the birth of the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, but the ministry of Jesus. And he talks about John the baptizer who went before Jesus. And he talks about John declaring that one was going to come who was greater than he was. That John was baptizing in water, but that there was one who was coming one that he wasn't even fit to tie his sandals that was going to baptize in spirit. He was setting the stage for Jesus. Jesus comes into public ministry and he's baptized. He's led into the water by John the baptizer. And as he comes out of the water, one of the most significant things of all of scripture takes place, which is an establishment for all that we're listening and watching to see where God comes. And he says, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. That is the symbolism or the significance of beginning Jesus' temptation, where he is led by the spirit into the desert for a period of 40 days. During that 40-day time, Jesus is going to fast, and he's going to be tempted in every way, but he will not succumb to sin. He will not succumb to temptation leading to sin. On the heels of that temptation, Jesus comes out, and he begins his public ministry. He begins teaching. He then begins calling his disciples. He goes along the Sea of Galilee, and he sees uh, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. They're fishing, and he calls them, hey, guys, stop what you're doing and come follow me. I'm, I'm going to make you fishers of men. The three of them travel a little further down the Sea of Galilee and in a boat off the shore with their dad Zebedee are James and John, brothers, and together the three of them call out, hey guys, come, we're going to teach you how to fish for men, how to, how, to, how, to, how to fish for people. And they abandon their post and get out of the boat and they together follow Jesus. Jesus then goes in to teach in a synagogue. He goes in to teach and as he's teaching a man possessed by a demon begins to cry out, what do you want with us, son of the living God? And as he's crying out, Jesus, in the middle of church service, tells the guy to be quiet. He says, knock it off, be quiet, get out of here. The demon leaves, and after shrieking and causing this man to go into shaking fit, into a seizure, if you will, the demon flees and the people begin to, to talk amongst them. Who is this man that he has power and authority to drive out demons? It seems then when you read the Gospels, you, you see that there's a picture. People have become familiar and all too used to people being filled with demons. Demon possession was commonplace for them. They weren't surprised by it. They weren't shocked by it. What they were surprised and shocked by was that this man, Jesus, had the authority to drive out demons. You're going to learn later on that they begin to, to challenge Jesus. In fact, they even falsely identify him as Satan. Oh, you must be Satan because only Satan has the power to drive out. And Jesus will respond by saying, why would Satan kick himself out of his own house? That makes no sense. But it would require somebody greater. Jesus goes on in his ministry where we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read to you verses 29 through 39. After teaching, here's what happens. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her. As they got there, they told Jesus about her right away. And so he went to her bedside, and he took her by the hand, and he helped her sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. That evening after sunset, I want you to hold on to that. That's significant. I want to spend just a minute on that in a moment. That evening after sunset. 
Many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. And so Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he didn't allow them to speak. Why is it significant that it says that evening, as the sun was setting, that Jesus was in Simon Peter's home with James and John and Andrew and Simon's mother-in-law and people are gathered around, but it happened at evening. Well, because this is on the heels of the Sabbath and the Sabbath held with it some religious laws and some rituals which prohibited people to travel certain distances or to partake in certain uh, instances, if you will. They couldn't go and be healed on the Sabbath. They couldn't go uh, very far in travel on the Sabbath. And they held high in high regard the, the Sabbath. Uh, the, the, they protected their, their sovereign rule that God set aside for them, not for God, but for people, for rest. And so on the Sabbath, there were a lot of things that couldn't happen. They heard about Jesus. His reputation preceded him. They had heard about him healing. They had heard about him casting out demons. And so as soon as they are permitted... From Friday night sundown till Saturday night sundown, they couldn't travel. But as sun set, the religious rule is lifted from the Sabbath, and they're permitted to then go again and be about their business, be about their chores, be about their travel, whatever it is they wanted to do. And so people, you get the idea that they're anxiously awaiting the sun to set. They're anxiously awaiting the sun to, to drop. And as the sun goes down, they come in droves. The Bible says that crowds, plural, gathered around this home. And there they peered in and they cried out to Jesus. They cried out for him to come out and heal them. He cried out for them to come out and release demons, the oppression, the depression and the possession that the demons had in their lives. People were lined up and Jesus responds by going to them, meeting them where they're at. He doesn't step around them. He doesn't step over them, but he steps into their circumstance and he delivers them from their ailments, from their illnesses, from their disease, from their infirmities and from their demon possession. Listen to that. He does it at sunset. Now pick up verse 35. Before daybreak, this is a continuation of a sentence. Jesus at sunset, as the sun is setting, is now doing a very public work in healing and freeing people from demon possession. There's a, about an eight-hour block where the sun is completely set. So what we know then is that between sunset and before the sun comes up again, within an eight-hour period, Jesus is dealing with all kinds of spiritual warfare. Jesus is dealing with all kinds of infirmity. Jesus is dealing with an eclectic group of people, not just religious elite, but everybody. It's a hodgepodge of people. And he does so in, in a short period of time. I can imagine in his physical being, Jesus being entirely man, was exhausted, and yet the first thing he does before the sun comes up in verse 35, before daybreak the next morning, so continuation now, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Jesus got up and he went out to find solitude with God. He put into practice solitude. Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. They were surprised that they couldn't see him. When they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. Hence my quasi-cheesy uh, segue at the beginning about peekaboo, that the kids, when you pull the hands away from their eyes, they're surprised to see you. Well, what if people weren't surprised that you practiced solitude? What if people weren't surprised that the first thing in the morning you had to do was to get away so that you could connect with your Savior, you could connect with God? What if instead of responding like the disciples do here in verse 37, when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And this goes all the way back to Jesus' first recorded words. Jesus is with his family. And as a community, they're going to worship. And after worship, the families of all these in the community are coming back together. And Mary, Mary looks around and she can't find Jesus. And she looks at Joseph and she says something like, you were supposed to keep track of him. And Joseph says, why is it my fault? And they begin to call out to the crowd, anybody seen Jesus? Hey, 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 have you seen Jesus? Nobody knows where he is. And so panicked, they hurry back to the temple. And when they find Jesus, they're surprised. And Jesus says, what are you surprised for? 
don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? What if people weren't surprised to see us with our Savior? What if people weren't surprised to hear that you're a Christian? What if people weren't surprised to learn when they go to your social media that you're a follower of Jesus or that you checked in at Country Bible Church? And why wouldn't you check in at CBC? This is the place to be. Well, what if they weren't surprised by that? Well, what do you mean that you're surprised? Come on. You know that I start, I got to get along with my Jesus. I got to connect with my Savior. I've got to. I want to do something a little, a little different than I normally do. I'm going to give you the big so what right up front. If you are an avid note taker, you're welcome. The big so what, what's it there for? What now, what next, what do I do with it? The big so what is this. In the middle of the chaos, solitude leads us back to our Savior. Jesus is in the middle of chaos. People are sick, people are dying, people are demon possessed. There's large crowds, people coming out of the woodworks, anxiously waiting for the sun to set so they can get up and go in light of religious rule and encounter Jesus. And he's entirely human. Yes, he's entirely God. Yes, he has all the authority, all the power, all the dominion. But he's entirely man as well. And so he's got to be exhausted. Yet the first thing he does in the middle of the chaos is we see him retreat. And he goes and he finds. Not only does he go and find, it says he got up and he went out. Church, he did it on purpose. He created moments of solitude on purpose. So that he, in the middle of his chaos could connect with what was most important. You're going to learn today, over the next few minutes together, that solitude isn't always a position, or excuse me, a place, but solitude is always a position. Some of you, you hear that Jesus got up early and he went out on his own to a mountainside, and if you're anything like my wife, God bless her, who has six children, her idea of solitude is trying to go potty without the kids. <laughs> and, and, and I'm no help. And they'll come to me with a question, and I've learned not to answer without knowing what she first said, especially with my two-year-old who wants chocolate milk. We talked about that. And so I'll say, where's your mom? And they'll say, she's going potty. And I'll say, go ask her. And they line up at the door. Each one of them, mom, can I have some taco milk? Mom, where's the hairbrush? Mom, Taylor hit me. Mom, I hit Taylor back. She's going to tell me, mom, where's the, where's the brush? Mom, do I need to brush my teeth? Mom, were you serious when you said clean underwear? Mom, what's for breakfast? Mom, mom uh, I think Taylor lost her arm. Mom, uh, mom, mom. How many of you can relate to that? You just want to go potty, and that's your, that's your solitude. You're like, oh, dear God, please don't let him find me. Your next home, you're going to have six bathrooms. There's only two of you, but when the kids come home, you want them to have to work to find you. <laughs> Jesus, in the midst of the chaos, creates solitude so he can connect with the creator. Each one of us, in the middle of our, so of, of our chaos, has to work at implementing solitude so that we can connect with our Savior. Psalm 46 is where I want you to turn. Psalm 46, as you're turning there, Psalm 46, we're going to be in all 11 verses. I told the first service a couple of things. When I preach, like when I go all out at the first service, you know you're in for it at the second and third. Number one. Number two, this is three sermons packed into one passage in 40 minutes. Let's pray. Father, help. God, I pray as we jump into today's message, the topic of solitude, the spiritual discipline of getting along with you, that you would enlighten us, that you would engage our hearts, that you would draw our minds as we lift your name up. Father, bring us unto yourself, and I pray your word come alive in us. Father, I pray that we would treasure these moments of learning and that we would work to apply what we're learning. Father, that it would be much more than just head knowledge, but it would be applied learning God, I pray that over these few moments we have together, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be honoring, they would be pleasing to you, God. And I pray that you'd be glorified. Redeem this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hey guys, I'm going to do a little teaching up front. Is that okay? Can I teach a little bit? I think that if I teach a little bit, it'll help me to preach a little bit better on the back end. So context and culture, I think it's so important. If you're, if you, if you're taking notes, get ready. You're gonna, you're gonna, I'm going to try to go slow. It's not going to happen, but I'm going to try. You're, you're going to love this, okay? Context and culture, I preach context and culture because it helps us better understand and apply the word of God. You need to hear me say that again. I've said it a lot, and I want to say it again. The reason we focus so much on context and culture is because we have got enough people taking scripture out of context and applying it to their lives and have milk toast faith. I'm not interested in that. The more we understand context and culture, the better we are able to understand and apply, which is, that's the, that's the crucible. It comes in full circle, the word of God to our lives. So there's three things I want to teach us at the front end about Psalm, specifically Psalm 46. Psalm 46 was written for three reasons. And I've, I've given them all P's, so they're easy for me to remember. Psalm 46 is written as a form of praise, Psalm 46 is written as a form of prophecy, which we'll see here in a moment. And Psalm 46 is written as a promise that we have to look forward to. So it's written as a praise, which is uh, it's consistent throughout all the Psalms. It's a, it's a book of praises, poetry, and prayer. That's a lot of peace. But it's also, this Psalm in particular is a, a Psalm of praise, a Psalm of prophecy, and a Psalm of promise, what God promises us. The other thing that I want us to see that I love about Psalm 46 may be one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 22 is certainly one of them as well. But Psalm 46, what I love, love, love about the psalmist here is that in 11 verses, he unpacks 10 distinct, unique characteristics and qualities of God. There are 10 characteristics that we see, and I've put them up on the screen for you, and a reference to the verse that you can find them in. I'm going to rattle them off quickly. The 10 characteristics that we're going to learn about together as we read Psalm 46, verses 1 through 11, are that God is our refuge, that God is our strength, that God is constant, he's consistent, that God is our helper, that God is our protector, that God is our ultimate authority, that God is ever-present, he's always with us. That God is our fortress. We're going to see that multiple times. That God is sovereign, all power, and that he's powerful in all circumstances. These are 10 unique qualities and characteristics that we're going to learn about God as we read through Psalm 46 together. This is going to be so important. So important for you to get these 10 characteristics. Uh, Go ahead and leave them up for just a minute longer. I want you guys to be able to write that down. Because until you understand these 10 characteristics of God... I don't believe that you'll be able to experience peace and chaos. But when you understand these 10 characteristics of God, you can experience peace and chaos. We're going to get there. The third thing that I, want to, that I want us to understand, that I want to teach on before we get going, is that this psalm is written in three different stanzas, three different sections. And I've taken the liberty of giving them titles so that we can identify them a little easier. The first title is Bring It On. Bring it on. And I'm going I'm to get into it here in just a second. We're going to get going. The second title is Reminder in the Rubble. Reminder in the Rubble. And the third subtitle or the third title or the third stanza is uh, Large and in Charge. Describing and defining God's position and his purpose. That God is large. That's his position. And that he's in charge. That's his purpose. So first stanza, bring it on. Second stanza, reminder in the rubble. And the third stanza is that God is large and in charge. Now that we've got some of that out of the way, the important stuff up front, now let's go and work through this together and see what the Lord has in store for us together. Psalm 46, an introduction. For the choir director, a song of the descendants of Korah to be sung by soprano voices. This would have been celebrated collectively in a worship setting. They would have come together as a community, and the descendants of Korah would have had a host of young virgin girls with soprano voices that would have sang this psalm as a praise, as a prophecy, And as a promise, it would have been done collectively in song, which is also the mandate, church, not this in particular, but as an example, the mandate for why we praise God in song, why we come together with a band, why we lift our voices together collectively singing to God. It's not here for a performance. We're not here to impress you. I mean, we certainly don't want to be up here and be really, really, really bad and have you come 20 minutes late so you can avoid the music. We'd like to make it enjoyable for all. But the reason that we come together is so that collectively, the worship team acts as conduit, creating environments where we can collectively worship God through the lifting up of our voice in song. This precedent was set thousands of years ago. 
We're just carrying on the traditions of our forefathers in the faith that were instructed by God through law to worship him with harp and lyre and stringed instruments and tambourines and our voices. Verse 1. God, Elohim, we're going to see a couple of different words or names given for God, Yahweh, Elohim. Here, Elohim is active, present. This is not was, this isn't past tense. The writer of this psalm is writing to the Israelites. Now, when God, whenever we read the scriptures, we have to understand there's two different ways that we interpret scripture, either prescriptive or descriptive. Prescriptive is where God prescribes something to us for that moment, in that season, and in that time. This was prescriptive for the Israelite community who were at war with one another and who were at war with various other communities. But it's also descriptive in that it describes characteristics of God, it describes circumstances that we face today, and it describes God's response to us. So as we read this, it may not have been intended for us in the beginning. In other words, it wasn't prescribed to us. But as Christians, we can hold on tightly to the entire word of God, inerrant, perfect, flawless, active, living word of God, as this describes how God moves in the midst of chaos and what our response and responsibility is. God is active, continuing, our being the Israelites, and now here are the first two of ten characteristics. God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble, always being that he is consistent or constant, and help is the fourth characteristic, that God is our helper. The Israelites have gone for years, hundreds of years in fact, as slaves at the hand of Pharaoh, and now at the hand of their own disobedience, they are being led out in the desert by Moses, following God, who leads with a cloud by day and a fire by night. And in their reckless disobedience, God continues to punish the community. God continues to bring plight to the community, plagues even to the community, war to the community. At one time, the Ark of the Covenant is, is even captured in war. And, and, and God allows this stuff, infirmity, he allows this stuff to happen because of their reckless disobedience. And why do I call it reckless disobedience? It's one thing to disobey something that you don't know. But Moses has received word from God with clarity and conviction about what we're called to do. The people receive it. They agree in covenant form with God at the base of a mountain. Yes, you will be our God. We will be your people. You will walk amongst us and we will glorify your name. These are your commandments seen in Exodus 20 for the first time, the Ten Commandments. Then building on that, we get the Mosaic Law, which has 613 laws, rules, and regulations, which not only give idea to who God is in character, but the form our relationship takes. So it's laid out for everybody. It's prescriptive. And the people of Israel agree to it. So if you agree to something, but then you disobey, let's go ahead and acknowledge what it is. It's reckless disobedience. It's complete disregard for what God has called them to. So the Israelites are hearing this, and they're in the midst of, of, of wandering and brokenness. In the midst of all the chaos that is the culmination of their lives, they hear this song of praise. God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. Now listen to this. Here's a byproduct. Whenever you see the word so, inserted at the end, or at the beginning rather, and on the tail end of a description, it's a byproduct, and here's what it says. So we will not fear when. I need you to consider circling or somehow highlighting the word when. Notice that the author of this psalm doesn't say if. Doesn't Jesus address this as well? Jesus says, in this world, you will have troubles of many kind. But take heart, I've overcome the world. He doesn't say, in this world you might, or in this world if you have troubles. Jesus says, in this world, as it is, in its broken state, fallen man, separated from God, in their sin, in their reckless behavior, they're going to have troubles. The psalmist here says, so when you have troubles, and they're going to look at two natural phenomena. When you, uh, he says, so we will not fear when earthquakes come and when the mountains crumble into the sea. 
When earthquakes come and when the mountains crumble into the sea, this is talking about something that they were really worried about. They weren't worried about their homes necessarily or their 401ks. There wasn't such a thing. Family took care of family. What they were worried about were natural disasters, things that could wreck their understanding of life and their way of living. This was real. Earthquakes were a real phenomena that had tremendous impact on them. And, 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 and anybody who knows, like when it says mountains crumbling, anybody who remembers March 1980 or Mount Rainier when it erupted, it's an active volcano, when it erupted, it carried such power with it that the winds carried the ash as far north as Canada, over five hours away, and as far south into California in some instances, the furthest north part of, of California. I was two years old when this happened, and I have family who remember taking little vials, little beakers, and going out on their vehicles, the hoods of their cars, and scooping the dust, the powder, the remnants of the, the ash from Mount Rainier erupting. When there's an earthquake, Near an active volcano, there's obvious fear of the repercussions or the fallout from something like this. So this is something that they were actively living in fear of. Today, if we're honest, unless in, in, in Heartland, in mid-America, we don't worry about earthquakes and, and, and those types of things, mountains crumbling. But if you live in Oregon or California or San Diego, the, you know, the, the furthest southern, or if you live on the East Coast, you worry about those natural phenomena. So what I want to do is I want to ask you to consider in place of earthquakes and mountains crumbling, the idea isn't the natural phenomenon. The idea is what we worry about. So let me ask you this question. This morning as you sit here, what is the earthquake in your life that you're worried about? What is the mountain that you're just waiting to crumble around you that you're consumed with? Because that's what the psalmist is addressing here. This isn't just about mountains and earthquakes. This is about what consumes us. And I need us to know something, that when we're allowing disaster and catastrophe and chaos to consume us, we're not in communion with God. And I know that's hard to hear, but it's the truth. We're not, at least we're not in complete communion with God because the New Testament, Jesus says... In Matthew, he says, don't worry about tomorrow, for today's got enough troubles of its own. And God, in his infinite wisdom, in his love, in his power, his authority, he cared for the, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the lilies of the valley. How much more does God care for you? He's numbered every hair on your head. He knows you intimately. You were created in his image. You were fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in your mother's womb before the creation of the world. He knows you, loves you, calls you, and cares for you. How much more will God care for you than these things? And then the Apostle Paul, to his letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 4, he says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving in your heart, present your request to God, and the God of peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We also know that, that fear isn't of God. A holy fear, a reverent fear, is for God. That we are called to have an awe, a reverence of God. But to live in fear is not of God. It's a, it's a man-made concept that we've adopted over time. In fact, when you're born as a child, you have two fears innately. Fear of loud noises and fear of falling. Any other fear that you carry throughout the course of your life is a learned behavior. It's a learned fear. It's a learned response. So... Yours may not be the fear of an earthquake, and it may not be the fear of a volcano, a mountain trump, uh, crumbling, but what is your earthquake this morning? Is your fear a broken relationship? Is your fear your finances? What is causing you to stay awake at night and to be grouchy to everybody around you? He says, we will not fear. When earthquakes come and the Mountains crumble into the sea. This is where I come up with the, 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 the subheading, bring it on. I love the defiance that the psalmist writes with. He has just declared that this stuff's going to happen. Now listen to his attitude. Verse 3. Let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. Go ahead. It's going to happen. Bring it on. The mountains are going to tremble. 
Uh, the, the waters are going to rage and it's going to create foam. There are going to be catastrophes and chaos. Bring it on because I've got God. When was the last time that was our attitude as we approached the world? That regardless of circumstances, we talked about it last week and we're going to revisit it here in a moment. We have confused the word joy with happiness. Happiness denotes that we should feel an emotion of happiness. Joy says that regardless of circumstances, I am at peace with my God. Your circumstances may not change. In fact, can I be honest? A hard truth, your circumstances might even get worse. But when you understand the characteristics of God, when you understand like the psalmist here declares, the first four characteristics, God is our refuge. God is our strength. God is ever present. He's always with us, giving us help. God is our refuge. He's our strength. He's always with us and he's our helper. Then it doesn't matter what happens. Your attitude toward life is bring it on. The apostle Paul had this confidence. That's how he could preach things like to die is Christ, to, or excuse me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. His desire was to be gone from this earth, to live in permanent residence with God, worshiping free from sorrow, free from illness and ailment and infirmity, free from broken relationships, free from the disasters and the catastrophes of this earth. He desired, he had an eternal focus. Peter, Peter draws our attention time and time again, not to the circumstances of this world. He says that you are only temporary residents and foreign aliens. You should feel uncomfortable. You should feel uh, just a sense of being uneasy in this world because we weren't created for this world. We were created to worship God in perfection for all eternity. But because of the fall of Adam, going all the way back to Genesis 3, the fall of man, while we're here, we're going to suffer. My question, my question is, what happens, church, what happens if we start investing in God like we invest in our retirement? Come on, that's good. What happens if we start investing in God like we invest in our toys, in our hobbies, in our interests? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things. But it is a problem when it becomes your God. When it takes the place of your God. Church, I love this attitude. Write in your Bible right now. Go ahead, I'm giving you permission. This should be a coloring book of God's goodness, right in the first three verses, bring it on. I don't care about the earthquakes. What do you have? That's, that's all you got. Bring it on. Oh, I don't care about mountains erupting. That's all you got. Bring it on. I got God. All right. Then look at this juxtaposition. There's a, God, the, the writer here flips the script in, in verse four. A river brings joy to the city of our God the sacred home of the Most High. God dwells in that city. It cannot be destroyed from the very brick of day. God will protect it. What just happened? If you look at just punctuation, at the end of the first scene, at the end of the first scene, it says, let the oceans roar and foam, let the mountains tremble as the waters surge, exclamation point, authority, power, significance, it's stressing the point here. Then all of a sudden, it brings in a picture of a river which brings serenity and peace and calm. A river brings joy to the city of our God, the sacred home of the Most High. Well, where's the sacred home of the Most High? Well, the author is writing about Jerusalem, or at least it would seem on the surface he's writing about Jerusalem. Remember I said that the first part that I wanted to teach about the three Ps, you got praise, now you're talking about prophecy. This is a prophecy. The author isn't talking about Jerusalem, because anybody who knows geography, anybody who's looked at topography will know that Jerusalem, there's no body of water in Jerusalem. There's no river, there's no stream, there's no lake, there's no waterfall. Now, over time, they will dig and create aqueducts so that they can bring water into Jerusalem, but there's no natural body of water. So what is the author talking about then when he says that the city of God, the most holy place, is like a river bringing nourishment and refreshment? Well, let's take a, a minute and talk about theology. In the Old Testament, we learn and see that God dwells in the tabernacle. 
that God dwells in the most holy of holies. There's clear mandate in scripture for the tent where the Israelites would have to construct as they traveled the meeting place for God and his people. That by day he led by cloud, by night by fire, but in the temple, in the tabernacle, there were specific instances about materials they had to use to erect this meeting place and the size and the length and the depth and there was all kinds of rules and regulations about it. And that's where God dwelled. When Jesus comes and he, he, he fulfills the old covenant and he introduces a new covenant where there's no more blood sacrifice because he is the ultimate atonement, the ultimate blood sacrifice. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm leaving. Where I go, you can't come yet. But I'm leaving one, referencing the Holy Spirit, that dwells where? Within us. So it moves from tabernacle to where the most holy place for God to dwell is in our hearts. Take that in for just a minute. This place where we're gathered right now, bricks, mortar, black stage, wood on front, pews, chairs, carpet, this is just a seven-acre parcel of land where we get together and Encourage one another, exalt the name of Jesus, and equip the believers. This isn't the church. The Bible says, you are the church. The Holy Spirit dwells in you, and you're the church. So what's the author of this psalm saying? He's saying that the river, which I talked about last week in Psalm 1, where there's a stream of water that you're rooted and you're planted and it's drawing nourishment and refreshment and life is coming from this source. That's what he's saying is that in the midst of your chaos, in the middle of your earthquakes, in the middle of your mountains crumbling, that when you are planted and rooted in God, that he is a river running through you that you draw nourishment and strength and refreshment from, that you are the most high, the most high dwells within you. You are the sacred home of God. Verse five, God dwells in that city and it cannot be destroyed. Circle that. Your you cannot be destroyed so long as God dwells within you. Yeah, sure, they can take your physical body, but we're not even worried about our physical bodies because we've got an eternity waiting for us. Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I keep my eyes fixed and focused. And, and, and nobody can destroy that from the very break of day. The break of day always is representative of battle. Go back to 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. Goliath comes out, calls down across to the, the Israelites, and he says, bring to me today somebody who will fight me. He does it morning and night. Daybreak signifies war. So what the author is saying here is that it doesn't matter when the war starts. From the very break of day, God will, this is the prophecy, he will protect you. The prophecy is that the temple is going to go away. And in fact, Jesus says, oh, look, I'm going to tear down the temple. I'm going to destroy the temple and three days later, it's going to be rebuilt. And so this is prophecy about where it's going to be, that it's going to be in us and what he's going to do. And in verse 6, he says, the nations are in chaos. Does that sound like prophecy fulfilled right now? The nations being in chaos and their kingdoms crumble. All you have to do is turn on CNN, Fox News, uh, whatever your news media outlet is, and it's like reading this in first person with modern vernacular. It's prophecy. God's voice thunders and the earth melts. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us, the God of Israel. Here it is again, our fortress. Man, it doesn't matter what we face when we understand and identify the characteristics and qualities of God. We can face anything because we know who we are and who's in us. And that's where we draw our strength from. That's why the author of this psalm says, look, there's a river running through you. And as long as there's a river running through you, regardless of your circumstances, you're drawing nourishment and strength and substance from God. Stop drawing from the nourishment, the malnourishment that this world has to offer. And then walking around anemic wondering why you're sick. Amen. Come on. As long as you're trying to draw sustenance from the things of this world to draw your nourishment from the things of this world and you put in there whatever you want, vanity, finances, relationships, your partner, your own expectations, your work, whatever it is, as long as you are putting your trust, hope, and faith in the things of this world to feed you, you're going to be malnourished and you're going to look anemic and grossly misfed and misrepresented. None of us should be surprised. But on the other hand, when we find our refuge and our strength 
in the ever-present help that comes from God, it doesn't matter what our circumstances are this side of heaven. We're going to be ready for the fight, and it's going to be evident in our bodies and in our souls and in our minds. You've seen those people. They're on their deathbed, and they're happiest people you ever met in your life. How can you be so full of joy? Because I have got the one who gives joy. Come on. As long as you're hanging on to the things of this world and not focused on the future, on eternity, then yeah, I can understand why. I mean, it's so hard to let go. But when you know who holds your future and the future's in his hands, it doesn't matter about the chaos. We're gonna talk about how you focus in the middle of chaos. Now, the third, the second one is reminder in the rubble, right? The first one is bring it on. The second stanza is reminder in the rubble. You need to be reminded in the middle of your rubble. The third one is large and in charge. God is large and in charge. Verse eight, this is the promise. Come, see the glorious works of the Lord, Yahweh. See how he brings destruction upon the world. This is a promise. He causes wars to end throughout the earth. He breaks the bow and snaps the spear. He burns the shields with fire. This is representative battle. This isn't just about physical war. This is about spiritual warfare. This is about mental warfare. This is about relational warfare. This is about financial warfare. And this is the promise of God that he causes these wars in your life to end. Some of you came here this morning and you're in the middle of a battle and you are just waiting for this war to end. And I've got a hope for you this morning. And that hope is the promise of God. In the middle of your war, if you will fully surrender your life to Jesus... Your circumstances may not change, but the outcome will. Amen. There's a war being waged for your soul. Don't be naive. There's a promise from God that when you surrender, regardless of the nations raging, regardless of the earthquakes and the mountains crumbling, that when you put your trust in Jesus, he comes in, he makes the war stop, he breaks the bow, he snaps the spear, he burns the shields. That's a promise. Verse 10. It moves from the psalmist's voice and into a vision from God where we hear first person, the voice of God. In the middle of the chaos, listen to the voice of God. Two things. Be still and know. Be still and know that I am God. I, the NIV says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. New Living Translation said, I will be honored in the nations. I'll be honored throughout the world. Church, I need to share with you a couple of things in this verse. There's a response and a responsibility for us. You want to write that down. We have a response and a responsibility. In the middle of our chaos, we have a response and a responsibility. In the middle of our war, we have a, a response and a responsibility. In the middle of our brokenness, there is a response and a responsibility that we carry with us. The first is our response. In the middle of your battlefield, be still. That's how we respond. Be still. And can I be honest? This, ser this sermon is a much, as much a confession as it, is, as it is a teaching. I am horrible at this. I told you guys last week, and I, and I meant it. I, God, God birthed me, and I started in sixth gear, and the transmission snapped off, and I've been stuck in sixth gear since then. I don't know. I, I can't be in my truck alone without turning the radio on. I can't be in my room at night without having ambient noise going. I can't. Uh, yesterday, I, I, I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to practice this, this whole being still thing. And so while I was folding laundry, I tried to close my door from the kids in the chaos, and I just stood in my room. And I, I felt like I couldn't get my mind to shut down. I was just, uh, it was a hundred things coming at me. At one, and I'm just sitting here thinking about all the chaos. And the Lord just kept speaking to me, be still, be still. So last night, we went into Homanah for my daughter's birthday. 12th birthday, we went bowling, and, and, and that's not chaotic at all when you have a 14-year-old, 12-year-old, 8-year-old, 5-year-old, and 2-year-old, and a bowling alley is completely packed with a bingo on one side and professional bowling in the middle and a bunch of amateur families in the front. Like, there's nothing chaotic about that. But as we get done and we're getting leaving the bowling alley, we're going to get dinner. The Lord just impressed upon my heart, I haven't done a good job of teaching my kids to be still. I haven't done a good job of teaching them 
about getting along with God and practicing solitude. So I said, and I know, parents, I know this sounds like it was, because my kids were all bickering, and can I play on your phone? No, dad said, I can play on his phone. And then turn it up, turn the song, and I stopped singing, I can't hear. Like they were just, they were doing what kids do. And the Lord impressed it upon my heart. And parents, it was brilliant. I said, guys, I really believe that the Lord is telling me that we need to practice solitude as a family. So for the next two minutes, I want you guys just to be quiet. I'm gonna pray. And then we're just not gonna talk for two minutes. And I prayed, and I, I prayed a sincere prayer. Lord, I pray you reveal yourself to us in this moment, in this moment of quiet as Stacy drives, that you would just speak to our hearts. And for two minutes, dead silence. Oh, it was brilliant. It's a brilliant parenting tactic. <laughs> Teach your kids solitude while you're driving. That, that's brilliant. I should, I'm gonna write a book on that. And at the end, I said, amen. I said, okay, guys, did, did the Lord... Did the Lord speak anything to your heart? And the first one to speak of was MJ, my five-year-old. She said, I didn't hear God. I said, okay, thanks for your honesty, MJ. And the kids went around and it got to Talon, my 12-year-old. And she said, Dad, I really felt like the Lord said in my heart, go teach. Go teach. And I said, baby, what do you think that means? And she said, I don't know, Dad, but do you think it means that I'm supposed to go and teach the gospel? Maybe that moment was just for Talon, but I have neglected teaching my kids the moment of silence and solitude, of just listening to God. He says, be still. Jesus, in the midst of chaos, people are lined up. They've been coming all night long with the demon-possessed and the sick, begging for Jesus, heal us, Jesus, deliver us, Jesus. And in an eight-hour period, he goes from healing and, and, and delivering to before the sun even comes up, he gets away from everybody and he gets along with his God. He finds solitude. He creates, the Bible says, he gets up and he goes and he creates solitude. And if Jesus, all-knowing, omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful, sovereign God needs to get alone to be with the Father, how much more do you and I in our carnality and brokenness need to be alone with the Father? But we think we're somehow superhuman. Well, Jesus did it, it was good for him, but I'm good. Let me just, let me just pull my bootstraps. And that's the attitude we take in life. We have, like we have predicated how to live life on the idea that the thicker the crap rises, you get on bigger hip waders and you pull the straps up and you just get in there and you through fortitude and, and, and drive. I mean, there's all kinds of quotations out there, these life quotes on how to just get through the, the garbage in your life. But the problem is we weren't created to just get through the garbage. That's not how we were created. We were created to rely on God in the middle of our wars, in the middle of our chaos. Our response in the middle of war and chaos is to be still. And the second is to know, to know that he is God. But how can you know he's God if you don't know his word? You got to know his word. When you know his word, it doesn't matter what's, what war you're facing. And the wars change. Do you know that? The wars change. This isn't, this isn't fair combat. It's not like we've sent drones over our situation and we can identify the enemy. This isn't equal combat. This isn't fair combat. This isn't representative combat where you come to the, to the enemy lines and cry out to each other and challenge each other. The enemy plays dirty. The Bible says he comes like a thief, like a lion prowling around waiting to devour us when we least expect it. So... so it's important for us in the middle of our wars, in the middle of our chaos, if we're going to be able to live a life that glorifies God and be stronger in our faith, we've got to take on the response of being still, and we've got to know. What do we have to know? We've got to know the characteristics of God. And there's 10 of them identified here. When you know that God is your strength, when you know that God is your refuge, that he's always there, that God is your helper, that you, God is sovereign, that God is, is, is omniscient, that God is the ultimate authority, that God has the ultimate power, when you know like you know like you know, then it doesn't matter your circumstances. You can be still in the middle of the war and know that God is Lord. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth, the Lord says. I want to finish where I started with the big so what. In the middle of chaos, solitude leads us back to our Savior. In the middle of 
chaos, solitude leads us back to our Savior. In the middle of chaos, solitude leads us back to our Savior. I want to talk to us about some practical ways we can focus on this, okay? Because I recognize that, that, that it's not always easy to find solitude. It's not always easy to get away. There are some circumstances in life that come up that, that don't allow us to leave physically, that we can't change, but it doesn't, it doesn't rob us of our solitude. Let me explain. Some of you know, many of you don't. Nine years ago, August, I had a stroke. And I don't mean a little stroke. I'm not talking a TIA. I'm not talking stroke-like symptoms. I had a full-blown, full-scale, lower-left cerebellar stroke. 78, statistically, 78% of the people that suffer from the kind of stroke that I had end up dead or incapacitated or paralyzed the rest of their life. And I have zero residual effects. Some would argue that. But the therapist at the hospital, when they signed my discharge papers, was pretty impressed. You know, they had me go through a battery of tests and all this. And, 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 and six days I spent in the ICU of Emanuel Hospital. Two days in the ICU, four days in the cardiac wing. I had the stroke. My wife was three months pregnant with my daughter Ryan. And... We didn't know what it was, and they took us to the hospital, and we got there, and they misdiagnosed me at first. They, my son, Caden, who's now 14, was sitting on my lap. He was five years old, sitting on my lap, and the doctor comes in, and he says, I think you've got a tumor on your brain. I located a spot in the CAT scan, and over just the course of a couple hours, they ran MRIs, MRAs, CAT scans. They did a, a transesophageal echocardiogram, which means they stuck a camera down my throat, into my, you know, into the inner side of my, to look for a hole in my heart. They did an anticoagulation blood. I mean, they did everything. And at the end of it, they said, well, we don't know what happened, but you had a stroke. But can I tell you something, church? In 39 years of life, 39 years of life, I have never been more at peace. I have never known solitude and been more at peace than I was when I was trapped in an MRI machine, strapped to all kinds of equipment, without a clue in the world as to what was going on with me. I had more peace in my life in that moment than I've ever experienced in 39 years of my life. And you say, how? I couldn't change my circumstances. But when you know, when you be still and know that He is God, your circumstances don't matter. The outcome is eternal. I put my trust in God. I trust my family to God. I trust my finances to God. I trust my future to God. And you know what? In the middle of those, those MRI machines, when you're sitting there for 45 minutes, five different times, and they tell you, okay, you're six foot one, you're 250 pounds, I'm gonna put some really weird dye in you, some contrast, it's gonna taste like you're swallowing lead. Don't move for 45 minutes, just stay there, don't move. And, and by the way, you're not supposed to fit in this machine, but we're gonna make you fit in this machine. So you're sitting there like this, and all of a sudden, and they say, don't move, they, they tell you, just relax. But it sounds like a construction zone. You know what? You know what I did in those moments? In order for me to find solitude so that I could focus on my Savior in the midst of the chaos that I couldn't get away from. I didn't create it and I couldn't escape it. I just prayed, Lord, in everything in these moments, it's yours. And I just began to sing. I sang some choruses. I sang this chorus. I said, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. And I sang this chorus. Oh Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I see. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds in me. In the middle of my war, I was at total and complete peace because God led me to a place of solitude where I could fix my eyes on my Savior. I don't know I don't know your circumstances this morning. I don't know the war that you're faced with. I don't know what your earthquake is. I don't know what your mountains crumbling looks like. 
but I know the author and the perfecter of our faith, whom we are called to praise, who reveals himself as prophecy, and who gives us the promises. And when we know who he is and who we are in him, it doesn't matter what this world throws at us, we can know peace. So my challenge to you this morning is that in these moments, you take time to get along with God in the inner recesses of your heart and align yourself with him. And just start by confessing where you're at and let him move in and through you. There's some very practical ways to, to put this into, into place as well. Getting up early. I was up at 3.45 this morning because I rolled over and I knocked my lamp down and crashed on my floor. That'll wake you up. I practiced some solitude this morning, but I try to get up every morning before everybody else does so that I can be alone with God. Anyway, church, I love you. I hope you've been challenged and encouraged this morning. I hope that God has met you where you're at and that you'll let him take you where he wants you to go. That's my prayer. Father, I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.